Paul thus far has been answering the question, what is our unity in Christ? As you've seen in Ephesians 1 through 3, it's been this glorious teaching about what God has done in Christ and through the church. But theology should never just remain theology. Theology always works itself out in ethics, in the way we live, in our response. And so this week, we shift gears into the how. How do we walk out our unity in Christ to the glory of God? If the church is to be the glory of God, as we've been hearing, and we are a united people, how do we practically live this out? Well, that is my aim this morning, to help us answer that question. How do we walk out our unity? But before we do that, let us review briefly a few key points about unity and the church. Number one, unity is God's idea from eternity's past. Before any of us existed, the triune God existed in perfect unity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We saw them working together in perfect harmony as they, as they uh, chose us from before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Second, unity involves God and it involves people. It's a vertical and a horizontal thing. And this unity was broken in the fall. We can see this in Adam and Eve, the first Merry couple that was, that was put together to reflect the oneness that we find in the triune God. And yet, in the original sin, Adam and Eve sinned, and uh, Adam blamed Eve. <laughs> there was disunity that came about. Of course, there was disunity not only between Adam and Eve, but also between man and God. And we see this being played out over and over again. This notion of disobedience, this notion of disunity between God and man and our futile efforts to bring unity outside of God's plan. But the gospel also says that unity was restored and it was found, it is found in Jesus Christ. In fact, this is the only place where unity, true unity, is found. Ephesians 1, 9 through 10 reminds us that God made known the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Shortly before his crucifixion, Jesus actually prayed for the church in John 17 that they may be one, even as we, meaning Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. Later we read in Ephesians 2.14 that Christ himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. But number four, unity is not just theoretical, it involves real people. It involves real people and it is found in the church. In the latter part of Ephesians 2, we read about Jews and Gentiles, groups that really could, could not be more different than one another culturally. And yet, Paul says that they are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We see this in our church. People of all walks of life, of all economic backgrounds, of different professions, of different race, gender, ages, worshiping together in oneness. That is beautiful. The fifth thing about unity is that it is our destiny. Just as it was from eternity past, there is an eternity future. 
I was struck just this week how God's plan extends exactly from eternity past to eternity future. We read in Revelation 5-9 about four living creatures and 24 elders falling down before the Lamb, singing, Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Think of that scene just for a moment. Think how humbling yet incredibly joyful it will be to worship together with brothers and sisters from all tribes and languages and nations, this ransomed captive people of God who will sing together in unison, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This perfect unity in diversity, complete freedom from the bondages of sin, yet completely captivated by the love of God. Point number six about unity is that we do not create unity. We don't create unity, but we are asked to maintain unity. Unity was God's idea. It existed long before we, even long before creation, long before Christ City Kitsilano, long before the bridge, long before, well, since the beginning of time. And it will exist long after More of us have gray hairs because he, the Lamb of God, has ransomed captive people from all tribes and nations and languages for his glory. But we are to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are to maintain something that has already been created in Christ. That's what verses 2 and 3 say in uh, in chapter 4. We walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity in the bond of peace. One theologian put it this way. He notes, in a sense, to be divided is to say that God has not done enough to produce unity. It is to minimize the most important aspect of Christian faith. These doctrinal unities should encourage the expression and the application of unity amongst Christians. And the last point about unity is that we are equipped to maintain unity. Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 13 speaks of this. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It is maintained by faith in Christ, which is worked out vertically and horizontally. And it is summarized, summarized by Paul's main exhortation to walk. During COVID, one of the unexpected benefits, I suppose, is that we've all um, had to endure different ways of interacting with people. In, uh, here in British Columbia, we have a few safe ways of interacting during uh, the time when, when the cases were bad. And one of those ways was to go on a distant walk with people. We've been able to do this much. We've been able to connect with others, to encourage, to disciple. But there's one important thing about walking with others that's uh, kind of key. Do you know what it is? It is, well, that you walk in the same direction. (laughs) Because if you aren't walking in the same direction, well, then you're just walking by yourself. And so we transition to talking about 
the how, as we transition to talking about the how, I want you to picture Paul's main exhortation here, Paul's main encouragement here of walking. He paints a clear contrast for us. Ephesians 4.1 says, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And a contrast in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And so it seems Paul is describing two directions of walking. He's saying there's one that is a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. In other words, walking in unity with Christ. And then on the other, walking as the Gentiles do, meaning walking as the world does. And additionally, as I mentioned, there are two dimensions of our relational response. There's walking in relation to God vertically, and there's walking in relation to one another, a kind of horizontal dimension. And the two are intimately related. As many of you know, my wife Karen and I do a fair bit of marriage counseling. And there is a fundamental principle that we always tell counselees, particularly married counselees, who are in conflict. We say this, if both parties make it their aim to please God, that is to walk humbly before God in a manner worthy of their calling, then reconciliation is guaranteed. In fact, it is the only time it is ever guaranteed. So, how do we maintain unity in the body of Christ? Well, make it first your aim to please God. That is, deal first with this vertical dimension. How do we do that? Well, let's consider a few ways that Paul outlines in Ephesians 4. The first is to realize our position before God. Consider verse 1 again. Paul describes him himself as a prisoner for the Lord. In verse 3, he talks about walking in the bond of peace. Now, let's think about that for a moment. He describes his relationship with the Lord as being bonded, captured, captivated. You know, we, we see this often in Paul's writings. And those of us who kind of have a theological mind tend to think of 1 Corinthians 6.20, you know, being bought with a price, this substitutionary atonement. But I don't think that is all that Paul is getting at here in Ephesians 4. You see, there's an emotional punch to his words. He's saying, are you so captivated by his presence, by his love, by the gospel that you are, it is like you are imprisoned? Or do you remain a prisoner and a slave to your own feelings? The manner of worthy of the calling that Paul is talking about is to be captivated by the Holy Spirit, to be imprisoned, so to speak, by the Holy Spirit, to have a, to have a soft, pliable, teachable, humble heart. He, is, he describes this heart in verse 2 when he says that we ought to walk with all humility and gentleness. Or, just to borrow on John's language, remember first, our study in First John, to abide and to walk in the light. Compare this to the way Paul describes um, the way of the Gentiles. Listen to verse 18 and 19. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart, 
They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The contrast in imagery, especially in view of our mental pictures of what prisons look like, is stark. You've got one that's a prison of light and the other that's a prison where you've got uh, people who are darkened in their understanding. And so let me ask you, do you know your position before the Lord? Do you seek to maintain unity in the body of Christ by being so captivated by the bond of peace that others know that you are a prisoner for the Lord? Another way that we can address the vertical dimension is through our confession and worship. Paul speaks of this in verses 4 and 6, 4 to 6 rather. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. In articulating these seven things that all Christians confess, he's reminding us that of the oneness that we have in Christ. Even though we are all unique individuals from different walks of life, different life experiences, different races, we've been united together in Christ in one body. And when we proclaim and confess these glorious truths, the truths of the gospel, corporately each Sunday and in our community groups throughout the week, we remind ourselves and each other of our union with Christ. These are not just truths that are uh, meant to be individually assented to in our minds. Rather, we confess, we live them out, we walk them out, literally. We walk out this reality, this unity, that God is all, through all, and in all, and that we are the body of Christ. So one of the things to consider as we examine this issue of unity in the church and the glory of God is, do your rhythms of life involve confession and worship and community? Do you regularly confess this unity, this one body, this one God, this one uh, God and Father who is through all and in all? One of the beautiful things I've seen lately in our church is exactly this, this intentionality of walking alongside people who are not like us, who are of different generations. I see young adults walking with seniors, encouraging one another just the same in Christ. How beautiful it is to see young people praying for the old and old people praying for the young. The third way Paul outlines is through a personal commitment to Christ-centered change through repentant faith. A personal commitment to Christ-centered change through repentant faith. We maintain unity by first making it our aim to please God through our position, our confession, as I've mentioned, and now by our desire to change, to be more like Christ. That's what Paul talks about in Ephesians 4, verses 20 through 24. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Maintaining unity means being willing to be changed by God to be more like Christ. Here's the interesting thing, though, about this point. We all think it's a great idea. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't want to be more like Jesus, right? 
But we forget that change generally doesn't come through some miraculous epiphany as we're just sitting alone in, in the park doing nothing. The need for it is often, often brought to light and comes in the context of relationships and community. And that means it gets worked out in the throes of relationships and circumstances with sinful people. In relationship and circumstances that involve other sinners. Um, I always get a chuckle when, um, when I counsel couples, particularly couples whom I've known in the dating stage and who have now become married couples. You know, in the dating stage, it's like, oh man, I found the love of my life. And, and it's, it's so rosy and beautiful. And, uh, and then they, they get married and they realize soon after, after they're in their marriage uh, that they've married a sinner <laughs> and that they themselves are a sinner and that there's conflict. Or how we often idealize living in community and living in a community house with other Christians and brothers and sisters and how beautiful that is and then realizing as we move in that, well, there are other sinners as our housemates and sinners as our roommates. In the midst of conflict and disagreement with brothers and sisters, are you willing to ask yourself, what areas do I need to change in this situation? What areas am I not walking in faith? What might God be trying to teach me through this trial? even if it involves someone sinning against me. How can I love like Christ? How do I walk in such a way so as not to give the devil, that's Satan, not your spouse or your enemy, an opportunity? When you consider the whole of what Paul is saying here, it becomes apparent that horizontal problems, that is unity with others problems, are intricately related to vertical problems unity with God problems. And so knowing this, it can be really helpful to ask yourself some diagnostic questions. Whose glory am I seeking? What is informing my decisions to act this way? Who am I loving? And at the same time, because we know that they are intricately related, we also know that we can find the solution in Jesus Christ. We can find our solution by repenting of our sin and renewing our faith in Christ and what he has done for us, and remembering the identity that he has given us. How do I maintain unity in the body of Christ? Well, we've just talked about by looking first at the vertical relationship with God, but second, by examining our attitude, our words and actions toward other believers. In other words, we can maintain unity by, by um, maintaining it horizontally. Paul elaborates at length what this looks like in Ephesians 4. And honestly, Ephesians 4 is so big that we won't get into details uh, of much of this. But I think it's helpful to think of it in, in kind of three big categories. Category number one is outlined by verse 2. Paul alludes to the fruit of the Spirit when he says, with humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. This, of course, speaks to the disposition that we have toward others. And usually when you've been sinned against, ranging from minor annoyances to major grievances, um, we are forced to reconcile with what Paul says. 
do we respond with humility, gentleness, patience? Am I going to bear with this other person in love? Do we respond in ways that demonstrate the unity of the body? Do we love them? It's good to ask ourselves when things like this happen. Is this an opportunity, perhaps, that God is allowing that I might love, learn to love and grow in Christ more? What is God trying to teach me through bearing with this person? How might I worship God in this? Or you might pray this, Lord, help me see the bigger picture. How is this person's differences, you know, who just annoys me so much right now because they're so unlike me. How can these, this person's differences actually be contributing toward the unity of Christ, toward the body of Christ? That brings me to the second big category, which is the gifts of the Spirit. Exercise them for the sake of the church. Exercise them for the sake of maintaining unity. Of course, there are many other passages in the Bible that speak of spiritual gifts. Consider 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7, which, for example, speaks directly to the issue of unity and gifts. Paul says this, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Similarly, in Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, we, that we read earlier, it highlights that when we exercise our gifts, we are doing the work of ministry and equipping others to do the work of ministry. We walk in the manner to which we have been called, um, to which he has called us, sorry, uh, and we are in fact walking in the way of unity for his church when we exercise our gifts. We are walking in this way because it is the appointed destiny for our church. Um, here's an illustration. It often encourages me as I think back on our church history about all the people that, pe- that God has brought along. And it's, it's apparent that God has brought them along because they each have different gifts and they've each built our church in a different way so that it is the body of Christ, the, the uh, example of the body of Christ that it is today. Such beautiful things. Um, that, that, that God has been doing in our church. Third, Paul speaks of truthing in love. Ephesians four fifteen through 16 says this, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. For all you Greek geeks, the verb in verse 15 is aletheuo, uh, which is literally truthing. Of course, truthing isn't a verb in English, so we often translate it speaking the truth in love, but really it involves speaking and doing. And when we consider our attitude, our words, our actions, we really would do well to ask ourselves, what is the most loving thing to do at this moment? What's the most loving thing to do at this moment? How can I best bring the truth of Christ? How can I best truth in this moment? Sometimes this looks like taking a meal to one who just had surgery or perhaps using your hospital privileges because you're a nurse or a doctor to visit a sister in hospital because COVID restrictions prevented others from doing so. 
Sometimes this looks like encouraging a brother or sister with scripture. Sometimes it means overlooking an offense. Sometimes this looks like forgiving sin. Sometimes this looks like a loving rebuke. Sometimes this looks like praying for one another or praying with another. Sometimes it means giving a hug, COVID safe, of course, or a listening ear. Sometimes this means just walking alongside. But the key here is operating in response to and in step with the Spirit, bringing to bear the truth of Jesus Christ in love. We act in trust that Jesus is the one who is able. In truthing, by the way, let me just encourage you to go beyond the surface. Some of you have read Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands by Paul Tripp. And in it, you might remember the four key words that he mentions in ministry, love, know, speak, do. My mentor, Dr. Robert Jones, offers a similar model. He offers enter, understand, and bring Christ. Enter. How can I love, lovingly enter into my brother or sister's world? Understand. How can I lovingly understand my brother and sister? How do I get below the surface, not just the facts, but seeking to really understand their heart? You know, recently, we've been talking about this truth and reconciliation and this, um, uh, this discovery that, that we've, we've seen, uh, that we've heard about in the news in Kamloops. And what a beautiful picture, though, when, when people are walking alongside survivors in our church and hearing entering into the world, understanding what it was like and bringing the truth of Christ to bear. How can we seek to understand each other and help one another in specific ways so that we can see life clearly? The third in this model is to bring Christ. How can I bring the truth of Christ to bear on my own heart and also on the heart of my brother or sister. How might God want to change us to be more like Christ at this moment? Dr. Jones, my mentor, as I said, will often talk about ways we can even do this on Sunday morning or when we see each other. You know, we tend to say, hello, so-and-so, how are you, which is fine, but then stick around and actually listen. Don't just use it as a greeting. Let's say so-and-so tells you about their aunt, who just contracted COVID. Instead of just saying you'll pray for their aunt, ask them this, how are you dealing with that? You see, that gets to the heart and it gives you an opportunity to minister to that brother or sister, to bring truth, to bring Christ to that brother or sister at that moment. In truthing to one another, a beautiful picture begins to emerge of the truth being more apparent, of Christ being more glorified, and of love abounding. We know that God loves us, for example, but that is abstract until someone in Christ tangibly loves us. We know that God forgives us, but that is also merely abstract until a brother or sister whom you have offended forgives you because of what Christ has done for them. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling means to do likewise for our brothers and sisters 
And so Paul concludes this chapter by listing some specific ways in verses 25 through 32. He says this, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Don't lie. (laughs) Speak the truth to one another. Be honest with them. If they've offended you, tell them in love. Be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Keep short accounts, forgive one another easily. Love them as you do so. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Be generous. Be generous even when you don't feel like it. Be generous because Christ was generous to you. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up. Boy, this is, this is a practical, practical uh, admonition. Watch your words. Uh, watch that your words are intended to build up the other person. As fits the occasion, Paul says, that it may give grace to those who hear. How often do we just stop and check our words before we say them, before they come out of our mouths, before we give them a piece of our mind? Is there a different way that we can say things like that? Is there a way that we can say things that demonstrate in real words, in real life, our love for them? Paul continues, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, clamor, slander, be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. I began by having you picture the many COVID-distanced walks that we've had with others. Often these walks, well, they just kind of go in circles because the intent is to kind of get to know the other person and not really the walk in itself. And so it seems, on the one hand, aimless. But are they really? You see, in connecting with one another, in walking alongside, doing life together in a manner worthy of our calling, eager to maintain the unity that has already been created in Christ, ministering to one another in truth and love, We are not just aimless walkers. We are walkers of destiny who have been saved from darkness into the light, from falsehood to truth, from disunity to unity. And it is a glimpse of what we will see in eternity. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to have ordained our salvation, not just so that we can be individually saved, but so that we can be a people, a unified people of destiny, that we can have a unified relationship with you. Father, I pray that you would help us to live it out, to walk it out, not as the world does, not seeking to create unity out of our own strength or out of Um, thin air 
but to maintain the unity that you have already established in Jesus Christ, who has reconciled us, who has bonded us to himself, who has captivated us by his love. May we be truly captivated by this. May we be ministers of truth to one another in your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.